uh, to this, uh, this uh, today's panel on a, on a topic that is uh, actually extremely important to us in our research agenda here at Bruegel on the environment and climate. Uh, we are progressively building up a research agenda, thank you to Simone for this, on, on this issue, uh, on the climate change and what to do about meeting uh, the criteria that we've set in the Paris Agreement. This is a very important line of research and we hope to do more uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the next year as well. Um, we have taken a sector-by-sector sort of sector approach to this, uh, to this issue. Last year we talked about coal and what it does to the environment and how we can, we can remove uh, uh, some of the coal consumption. This year we're looking at transport uh, and uh, what are the uh, progress that we've made in terms of the CO2 emissions in the transport sector. And with us today we will have uh, two uh, uh, distinguished guests. Um, the first one, of course, is uh, Francesco Starace, um, uh, who is the CEO of Enel, who is here to tell us uh, some of the energy uh, lessons that we can draw from electricity and perhaps uh, use those uh, to inform the discussion also on other sectors, including transport. And our very own uh, Simone Tagliapetra, who is going to kick off the discussion uh, by presenting some of the, uh, the results of his recent research on exactly this issue and with emphasis on, on some of the policy recommendations. So, Simone, if you start with uh, maybe 10 to 15 minutes, and then Francesco, you follow up with another 10 to 15 minutes, and then I would like to encourage a dialogue also with uh, our very interesting uh, audience today. So, um, without further ado, Simone, yeah. why don't you, uh, Thank you. give us, uh, you have the word. Thank you very much, uh, Maria. Thank you very much to all of you to be here with us today to discuss uh, one that I consider to be a very crucial topic as far as the future of the decarbonization of Europe is concerned. The reason why we look at transport from a climate perspective is very simple and is very clear from this graph. If you look at the developments of the greenhouse gas emissions of Europe over the last two decades, you will see that emissions have strongly decreased in all sectors with the only exception of transport, a sector on which emissions have actually augmented by 20% since 1990. This is the reason why today transport is basically becoming the first emitting sector in the European economy. And that's why we need to care about this sector because otherwise this will become the major stumbling block in the European decarbonization pathway. If we go more granular into the emissions of the transport sector, we can see that around 70% of the emissions in the sector comes from road transport. And the problem here is mainly due to cars and to heavy duty trucks and buses. So the large majority of these emissions are really concentrated and due to the cars we have around our cities and the uh, trucks and buses. Cleaning up this sector is not crucial only for climate change mitigation. It is also extremely important to make our lives better and to make the lives of our kids better. Because when we walk around, for example, Brussels in the morning, I think that all of us can smell what this issue is all about. And this is a, an extremely relevant issue also in terms of healthcare, because Every year in the European Union, we have around 400,000 premature deaths. 400,000 premature deaths due to air pollution 
of which, of course, transport is a key contributor to. Of course, decarbonizing transport is not easy. It is a challenging task. The first challenge for road transport decarbonization is certainly represented by the fostering of technological innovation and the deployment of clean vehicles. Because electric vehicles, for instance, certainly represent today the most promising way to decarbonize a substantial part of road transport. But if you look at how many electric vehicles we have around, these still only represent 0.2% of the European total vehicle fleet. So it's clear that more technological breakthroughs are needed in order to decrease the cost of electric vehicles and also to augment their performance. Of course, we also can keep investing in other options. Think about hydrogen, for instance, that can also represent uh, a decarbonization option in a longer term scenario. If you look at the European situation as far as this R&D is concerned, we have a good news. We in Europe are the world's largest investors into automotive research and innovation. In Europe, the automotive industry spends around 50 billion euros per year in R&D, while, for example, the US spends less than 20 and Japan around 30 not to talk about China, where the R&D of the automobile uh, industry is still less than 10. The bad news is that uh, the automotive industry in Europe seems to be still focused a lot on developing uh, internal combustion engines, so petrol and diesel motors. And uh, this is due to the fact that if you look at the patent data, as we did, of uh, the, last, uh, the patents of the last few years, you will see that uh, around 40% of these patents done by the automotive industry is still on making internal combustion engine more efficient. And only 23% of these patents goes to electric technology. But there is another big challenge to the decarbonization of road transport. And uh, uh, this relates to the promotion of model shift. The best way to decarbonize the sector is simply to reduce demand for transport. But this, of course, involves changing the behavior of people, which is a challenge by itself. And in addition to this, we got another big obstacle, which is governance. Because transport is not governed by a single institution, is not governed by a single level of governance, it is governed at least by three different levels. We got the city level, which with, of course, regulations in terms of congestion areas, parking fees, public procurement, decisions about public transport, and so on and so forth. We have the country level, where many decisions are being made, of course, for example, in terms of the deployment of infrastructure, the energy taxation, as we will see, a crucial issue, maritime, rail activities, so many decisions taken at the country level. And then, of course, we also have the European level, notably with the setting of emission standards. So the point is that these three levels of governance often do not talk to each other and often are not coordinated. And that's uh, something that we should at least uh, face because uh, different options taken at different levels can even be nullifying each other. 
just to provide you an example of uh, how different policies can be in the field, just think about what countries like France, Ireland, the Netherlands, and the UK have been announcing over the last uh, 18 months about the ban of uh, uh, petrol and diesel cars by 2030-2040. These countries have adopted and promoted these bans, while the others have not. But also cities are having very different approaches in this field. For example, as I mentioned here, Copenhagen, Paris, Madrid, Athens, Rome are just few of the cities that announced themselves bans on the circulation of petrol and diesel cars by 2020-2030, while other cities are still lagging behind. So there are still major differences in terms of governance. In our view, Europe can have a very important role in fostering road transport decarbonization, but in order to do this, Europe needs new policies. From the graph that I show you at the very beginning, it's clear that the typical tool that the European Union utilizes to decarbonize transport emission standard is not delivering. The emissions have kept growing over time, so it's clear that this is not sufficient to ensure the decarbonization of the sector. The clean mobility package is certainly a positive attempt to make our policy in the field better, but in our view, Europe needs a new strategy for the post-2020 landscape in order to really give a big push to the decarbonization of road transport in particular. We propose a three-step strategy. Step one should be, in our view, from the European Union to encourage all European countries and cities to adopt plans to ban diesel and petrol vehicles following the example of what other countries like France and the UK have already done. In our view, these plans are a very simple but effective policy tool to provide investment certainty for the automotive industry first. Because if you know that there is a political commitment to stop having diesel and petrol cars around, then the automotive industry will take the issue of clean vehicles probably more seriously. <coughs> and this would also facilitate the transition in the industry, which represents today a very crucial part of our manufacturing system. But these plans would also be very effective in delivering the famous model shift, so the change in behavior of people. Because if you know that your mayor is committing not to allow your diesel car to go around the city center in 10 years, probably when you buy the new car, you will think about twice which kind of car you will buy. In our view, the European Union has a margin to incentivize this move, and notably by using the carrot of European public funds. We propose that in the post-2020 scenario, the European Union establishes an EU Clean Transport Fund, which should be dedicated to provide financial assistance, notably to the cities that are committing to this phase out of petrol and diesel cars, in order to adopt decarbonization measures, such as the deployment of alternative fuel infrastructure, electric vehicles charging points, for instance, <coughs> zero carbon public buses, sharing and pooling solution to be integrated to the local public transport, but also the promotion of more sustainable modes of transport, such as walking and cycling. This does not mean new money to be allocated to transport. It just means to make a better use of the money that are already 
allocated to transport. Because if you look at the current budget up to 2020, the European Union has devoted to this sector around 100 billion euros between the Connecting Euro facility, the structural and the cohesion funds. In our way, in our view, this is not efficient. And the a best way to, uh, to carry out and to incentivize people to really move toward the decarbonization of the sector could be to create a flagship initiative to really provide visibility to the players that want to move forward in this sector. The second step should be about taxation. Taxation represents a key policy tool to foster road transport decarbonization. Taxation can influence the behavior of people, but it can also, if well settled, influence the behavior of the industry. For this reason, we think that the current fragmented situation of transport taxation in Europe, where each country has its own system, should be progressively harmonized. Just to provide you an example that I think is quite telling, today in Europe, out of the 28 member states, only 10 do consider CO2 emissions in the composition of their vehicle registration taxes. So it's clear that we have these tools, like we have also the opportunity, for example, of providing subsidies, grants, tax credit, to stimulate the deployment of clean vehicles. In our view, it is a, a duty of the European Union to stimulate a discussion in this field exactly in the same way that Europe is doing for digital taxation. Third step, and the closing of the ring, I would say, is about the future. It's about research and innovation. We are aware of the fact that if we adopt these bans for diesel and petrol vehicles, the immediate effect will be a big push to electric vehicles because this is today the most promising option to, of course, be adopted to clean up this sector. We think that this is something that we should aim at because that's effectively something that can deliver the decarbonization of the sector, but we also should be cautious about not preventing other potential options to come up in the future as the technological development goes ahead. For this reason, we think that in the post-2020 horizon, current horizon 2020, uh, the transport-related research and innovation funding of the European Union should really target early phase technologies in the sector, such as hydrogen, solid-state batteries, or electrofuels, in order to really make a difference. The reason why is that we have little money in comparison to what the industry is spending every year in the research and innovation. The European budget for research and innovation in transport represents 0.2% of the European automotive industry annual R&D investments. So we have a comparative little money to spend, but we should, exactly for this reason, be attentive in making this money having a leverage in the technologies that otherwise would not be promoted by the private sector itself. To conclude, let me just uh, stress out once again the reason of all this. Transport decarbonization is not just about climate change mitigation, which, by the way, is important itself. It is also about cleaning up the air we breathe every day, and it is also a lot about 
ensuring the sustainability of an industry, the automotive, that represents a really crucial sector for the European economy. I will stop here and then I will pass the floor back. Thank you very much, Simona. That's uh, very interesting and very concrete. So thank you for, for giving us this three a clear policy recommendations. I'm going to give you a question just for, for to think about before Francesco takes over. But this idea of the of uh, you know solving the problem by reducing the demand for transport. I mean that, that of course is it goes without saying. But the demand for transport is a crucial input to the growth of any economy. So I think the challenge here is not to reduce the transport for demanders, but to replace it. Mm -hmm. And of course, there is a cost to all of this, and there is time. Time is an important variable in all of this. So while we think about you know, taxing or banning uh, diesel cars, given elasticities out there, uh, the challenge, I think, is something that I would like to comment on, is how do you do that without affecting the transport of people from places to yeah. places, uh, such that you don't disturb a particular economic uh, mm -hmm. growth model? So, you know, I'm, I'm asking a question that is both crucial for the environment, but you don't want to go back in terms of economic development, uh, because that would, of course, be, it would not be yeah. a desirable thing. But before, before you answer, um, I'd like to give the floor to uh, Francesco. Francesco, you come from, from an the electricity industry. So some of the lessons we see that the electricity industry is, uh, is a big winner in the, in the first graph uh, that Simone presented. Um, what, what can we learn about uh, from your experience yeah. in, the transport, uh, in the transport sector? Maybe <clears throat> what we can say is that um, if we take the electricity industry transformation and what is happening there, there is a lot of uh, lessons that can be learned from that and that can be directly related to the transportation industry change that is happening nowadays. So we have experienced in the last 10 years, I would say, uh, a huge change in across the whole value chain of the electricity sector um, under the influence of two technology drives. There, it's technology really that is the deep force behind this transformation. One is the technology related to the word digital. So everything that has to do with digital directly or indirectly affects the industry directly because it changes the nature of the objects we buy and the way in which they are operated, indirectly because it changes the behavior of our customers and the society which we serve. I mean, we exist because energy is consumed by society. And the digital way of consuming energy is different. So that's one force that is really driving a huge change in the industry. There is another force which is less known and less apparent but it's there and it's transversal to many other industries, which is the uh, incredible improvements in material science. So everything that has to do with materials with which we have our things built is increasingly improving. So materials are lighter, they last longer, they're less expensive, they're cheaper. So they, they, they are better in many different ways. And the combination of these two forces is really what has driven, for example, the increasing and now established competitiveness of, of, of some renewable energy sources that were not competitive uh, just 10 years ago. The global scale they reached and the improvements of these technologies made it now possible to basically have competitive renewable energy penetration in many uh, generation mixes of many parts of the world. And the footprint 
where this uh, becomes more and more clear is improving and increasing day after day. So what happens under this, this, uh, this effort? That the generation part of our um, industry is changing. It's changing under our eyes, and it's changing in a way that is already clear. So there will be a progressive phase out of a large part of the generation fleet that today is called thermal, and a substitution with another part of generation fleet, which today we call renewables. And you might recall that maybe five or 10 years ago, there was a name called alternative. This is gone now because it's become so big that it's ridiculous to call it alternative. So this fact is happening. So while this is happening, two things happen in a system that is progressively um, uh, more and more renewable driven. And you observe that costs of the energy tend to go down at wholesale level because this is a zero marginal cost part of the generation fleet that gets more and more into the system. And number one, costs go down. And number two, <clears throat> they also stabilize over the years. They become less sensible to commodity fluctuations that were the driving force of, of uh, volatility in the past. So as you have a system that has an increased chunk of renewable energy into the generation mix, you observe wholesale prices to go down and to stabilize. So all of a sudden, electricity becomes available for uses which were not conceived before. Uh, you can use electricity for heating. It was considered blasphemy at school. You, know, you don't do that. But then you can do it if it's not entropic uh, at the beginning. So there's a lot of different uses of electricity that become available as this progress goes by. And then <clears throat> security of supply improves. You depend less from uh, commodities that are imported elsewhere. And of course, you decarbonize, so you have less carbon into the, into the generation footprint. And you have an energy that is increasingly available mm -hmm. to displace <coughs> other carbon-intensive uh, um, energy sources. <coughs> that brings us to transportation, obviously, because uh, while these forces that I've just mentioned work on the electricity sector, they also work on the automotive sector. Digital is increasingly part of uh, the automotive sector. If you open your car, you have a big digital device with a lot more digital things that no one really understands how they work, but it's no more a car that we used to have 20 years ago. And no more that, and the materials with which our cars are made are increasingly uh, lighter, Better. I mean, you just notice the difference if you take a car that you were used to drive 15 years ago with the car you drive today. It's a completely different animal. And cars exist now more than a century. So this progress is affecting also the automotive sector in a deep way. And it makes um, the combination of increasing um, uh, convenient batteries and uh, the obvious more efficient electricity-driven motors make it possible to build electric cars that are competitive on a cost basis, maybe not now, but in the next few years, on a total ownership basis with uh, internal combustion engines. And of course, um, these cars are two to three times more energy efficient, and they, of course, are already now 50% less CO2 
intensive with the energy mix that we have on average in Europe, and as, as, a, as we decarbonize the energy mix, they will be obviously less and less energy uh, 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 carbon intensive. There is another trend which affects another sector of the industry, which is the distribution networks, which is typically in, in the energy sector has been a neglected part of the value chain for many years. <clears throat> that is becoming a very sexy part today of the value chain. You put a lot of digital devices into the distribution network, and all of a sudden the network is able to perform much better. It becomes much more resilient. It improves the quality of the output, and it becomes easier to manage, less costly. So. As these networks become digitized, we're talking about the low voltage and medium voltage networks, <coughs> then they become ready to accept energy flows that move in different directions, not only from high voltage to low voltage, but also from low voltage to low voltage, or from low voltage to high voltage. They, they become functional in different ways. In a world, they are no more distribution grids. They are networks. The word distribution implies a top-to-down flow. I distribute you my energy. A network is a system that connects energy sources and demand in horizontal ways. And as digital networks become more and more frequently available across energy systems, storage becomes um, much more useful and becomes much more easy to understand in its own big functionality. Because it's true, uh, renewable energy sources have their fluctuation and they have their um, nature. Uh, and they require a compensation and a ballast to, to stabilize systems. That requires storage. Storage <coughs> comes in many different ways, and batteries are a big storage mean. Um, and once again, we go back to cars. Um, cars for us that drives them are vehicles. For manufacturers that sell cars, they are goods. For us, utilities, they are batteries on wheels. So we look at cars and we say, how many hours is a car being driven in a year? And the experience, of course, varies, you know, depending on what kind of job we have and what kind of uh, use we have of our car. But the classic car is not driven more than 1,000, 1,500 hours a year. Most of the other time, uh, the car is rusting away, collecting fines, or uh, being scratched, <laughs> parked somewhere, and basically destroying uh, capital uh, the moment we buy, from the moment we buy on. So if we imagine this car connected to a smart grid with its battery uh, available to the grid, this car can become a revenue source for the owner because it can, uh, if the grid is digital and the, the car is enabled, it can become part of the balancing system of the grid while it is not being driven by the owner. So you can imagine that, for example, for a utility, electric cars are good because they consume electricity. True, but only marginally true because the amount of electricity increase the, the demand that we expect from cars in the next 10, 20 years 
some demand, but not that much. It's so efficient in, 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 the, in the use of energy that it, it would take a long, a long time and many, many millions of cars to really make a dent in the electricity demand. But it is important because it is a source of flexibility into the grid. And that's real value for uh, any uh, electricity utility around the world. So that's why we got interested in cars, basically, because of the world electric, but also because of the content of battery storage that sits in, a, in every car. So what we started looking at this chicken and egg situation, saying, you know, we would like to have many cars around because they would be very useful. But then you would say, why would someone be, buy a car if there's no clarity around the infrastructure to charge the car with? And, and so forth, we went around this circle. So at a certain point, we made a study related to a country like Italy. Italy has today about 30 million circulating vehicles, internal uh, combustion engine vehicles, and about 10,000 electric cars. Um, and about six millions of idle cars that still exist, but uh, for some reason are not being driven anymore. Uh, so we said, let's imagine that we have a number between 300 and 500,000 electric vehicles of the present technology, not those that you hear will come in, uh, in the next decades, the ones that today exist. And we asked, um, the study to tell us how many public charging stations we would need and where in the country in order for the owners of these 300 or 500,000 electric cars to have a normal life. So without the worry and the concern to be left. And the result was a number that was between uh, 10 to 14,000 public charging points which implied an investment between 200 and 300 million euros in the next three years. So we said, let's do this. And we started uh, an investment that is today underway, by which we will put down this number of public charging stations. The business concept is really not so simple, because clearly this, this, we are not uh, advocating to put the cost of this investment into the electricity tariff, because we think it is very unlikely, and I would say quite, Ill, quite against the ethics that the big number of customers would pay for a few car owners that have an electric cars. So we, we said this would be paid by the electric car owners or cars. The experience so far is that every two cars sold one private wall charging station is attached to at least one of the two cars. So there is a business on selling wall boxes that is two or three orders of magnitude the number of public charging stations. That is what pays for the public stations, basically. And with having broken this chicken and egg situation, we started this uh, deployment of uh, of uh, chargers. The uh, vehicle uh, manufacturers are all interested in what we're doing. Of course, we're talking to all of them. 
uh, about the technology that we are in deploying, which is a vehicle-to-grid enabled technology. So cars can be used to charge and discharge. Not all car manufacturers today have the same degree of uh, acceptance of this technology, so this will take time for the industry to develop. Um, we are aware, of course, that the technology on charging of batteries is changing as battery capacity is evolving and different battery systems will come up. This will have an impact on the charging network itself. Uh, so there is a, a concept of deploying a network that is upgradable and upscalable as the, the evolution of the technology will progress. But all in all, when you consider the amount of investment that a company like us is, is carrying out, this is not a big investment. Because the infrastructure that is needed to feed the electricity cars uh, deployment, at least at the, I would say, first decade, is already there. The infrastructure that we have is already able to cope with it for many, many years to come. And, um, and I would add, there is a secondary part of this uh, evolution that is never really fully discussed, which has to do with public transportation. I'm saying buses, basically. So the amount of buses uh, that circulate uh, in Europe is huge. Um, the amount of uh, CO2 that they generate polluting the cities, because they, they circulate mostly in cities, is impressive. The capability to uh, switch to electricity for buses is already there, and China is pushing electricity into its bus transportation system in a, in a drastic way to clean up the mess they have in big cities. So the potential for uh, decarbonizing transportation, in our opinion, will start mostly on the public transportation uh, segment because it's very easy. It's, it's an incredibly easy way to start with. We have a direct experience, not in Europe, but in Chile, where Santiago is today planning to put electric buses in the city of Santiago, which is very polluted, by the way. And um, after a year of testing, they have understood that they are available, they cost less, they, they don't pollute, people love them, they don't make noise around the street, and they're switching to electricity, their bus transportation system. I think Europe would probably only benefit from that with a very limited impact on the infrastructure because buses can be charged at the end of their uh, transit and come back. So from our standpoint, the e-mobility um, evolution is quite obvious. Uh, it's it's a, just a question of the next five years in which you, people will get accustomed with this change and they will understand that many of the myths that are told around cars uh, that are driven by electric motors are simply myths, and it's available to most consumers on a competitive manner. The automotive industry will experience uh, a transformation that uh, I think most of the um, car manufacturers have clearly identified in its nature and are, and, and are addressing in, in similar ways. Um, I think those that resisted it until the end now have finally given, given up. Uh, I think it's a symbol that you know you can have in a, even Ferrari thinking about an electric Ferrari, which is like uh, blasphemy. <laughs> you would never think of it. 
But you, 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 I heard that even Harley Davidson is planning an electric uh, Harley Davidson, which is really. So I think that fact is coming. And we will all laugh at what we were saying five years ago, five years from now, looking at what we have in front of us. From our standpoint, the challenge is quite um, the one to establish the basic infrastructure at public level to be ready to serve the demand of charging wall boxes at home, private, office, residences, uh, and to be able to upgrade at digital level the existing distribution networks, which across Europe have different degrees of digital uh, readiness. I think that's the most important challenge. Uh, I think you addressed very well the issue of policy, because policy is important. Eh? Uh, I don't think that trans you know, this transition will take place uh, smoothly without some policy, uh, and I, I agree with many of the things you said. Um, so from our standpoint, we don't, we don't ask for a policy change in the energy sector. As we said, we don't want to have it in the energy bill. We think it should be paid by the market. But at state member level, at European level, we, we think we need to have some top-down regulatory uh, basic frameworks so that Europe doesn't lose competitiveness in the process. It's, it's, it's an industry that is too important for Europe to lose. It's a big potential for uh, maintaining leadership in the, in the technology, uh, which today risks to be moving out from Europe into China. I mean, China is really pushing this uh, a lot. I stop here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, a lot of very interesting facts here, and I'm sure that questions will come. But if I may, uh, if I may ask you to make a prediction, and notwithstanding the policy recommendations that uh, that, uh, that Simone is putting forward, I mean, if you were to look five years from now, ten years from now, how would the transport sector look different? In, uh, I mean, I, I have used how I would like it to look. But yeah, I, I can say that for sure the public transportation will hmm. be electrified. I mean, those that will not have electrified the public transportation would be probably because they have very peculiar situation to deal with. But I would be very surprised if the public transportation of most cities in Europe would still be on an internal combustion engine basis 10 years from now. It would be crazy. And I think there would be probably a big penetration of electric vehicles into the private fleet, but most public fleets, you know, uh, company fleets, uh, commercial fleets, they will be electric because it's more, it's, it would be more convenient to run on that. Um, there is a big question mark on trucks because trucks, uh, it's, it's an open discussion between trucks being fed by gas or being fed by electricity. And here I think the, the solution will be which of the infrastructure will be more, uh, more available in, on a diffused level. And I think here the, the issue with gas that I have, I have nothing against gas in itself. I think it's proven not to be successful at deploying a very, very local level a, a, a distributed infrastructure that pushes gas into, into the system. So I think it's the cost of building infrastructure that is, that is discriminating technologies. Um, Okay, lovely. Thank you very much for that. Uh, so, quick reactions yeah, so before just, we. Yeah. If I may, I think the one of public buses is indeed a very good example of 
how the system can evolve and so on. But they still are a small and, component in your graph. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But on these, I think it's it, there is a very recent and relevant example coming up from Berlin, because I think that it was a month ago or a month and a half ago that the city was looking for electric buses to be yes. deployed in the city, but they couldn't find them in Germany and in Europe overall, so, it, so yeah, they, they had to buy them in China. Yeah. And uh, the fact that in the capital of what is uh, the European powerhouse of the automotive, you need to go for Chinese electric uh, buses, that tells you a lot also about uh, how <laughs> slow the, the automotive uh, industry has been in this continent in uh, adjusting to this change. With uh, my colleague Renide Wegelers over there, we are working on a new Bruegel study about the future of the automotive industry, exactly to identify how the European automotive industry is responding to the electric vehicles and the autonomous driving challenges. There is still a long way to go. I think there is nothing wrong in the fact that, you know, you, sometimes China can be up front. I mean, the, the issue is just, do you want to leave them like that or yeah, yeah, what? Exactly. Absolutely. I, I read a study ten, 10 days ago that was issued that because of the big push of um, electric public transportation that China is, is uh, deploying, every year China is saving the amount of uh, diesel oil that Greece, that, if you bring, that <laughs> That Greece is consuming every year. Yeah. So it's a huge amount of fuel oil that they're saving based on that. Okay, then this is just at the beginning of the curve. It's a huge uh, change. Great. Well, thank you for that. Perhaps we can, in view of the time, we can uh, open up the floor for some questions. If you could uh, please let us know, uh, introduce yourself where you're coming from. Uh, first question here. Let's collect some questions if that's okay. Yes, please. So, thank, you very, thank you very much for this presentation. Uh, I would Could like you introduce to... yourself, please? Okay. My name is François-Xavier de Montchassard from Total. Thank you very much for this presentation. I would like to address uh, to uh, Simone Tagliapietra and uh, to say that uh, we are not in favor of uh, a single local solution uh, you refer as the ban of combustion engine as the main solution. You know that uh, the Paris Agreement objective of well below two degrees is a worldwide objective. Uh, it's not limited to EU, and EU represents only 10% of the emission uh, in the world. So I would prefer to have a, a worldwide approach rather than a EU one. So the second, my second point is that I would prefer to have uh, different solutions. We, we are convinced that we can still progress in the combustion engine. So you have seen that we are, improved, we are improving the liquid fuels, the constructors are improving the weight of their cars, the equipment of the cars are improved as well, and they will be able to capture most of the emission in the future. <coughs> so you, you shouldn't exclude them from uh, the beginning. Remember that if we have today about one billion cars, in 2050 we will, be, we will have two billion of cars. If 50% of those cars were electric, that means that it remains still one billion <coughs> combustion engine car. 
So to, to think that you can ban this, it, it's true that from political reason, countries like France, Netherlands, and, uh, and some others may, may want to ban, but we, 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 we ha will have to see the, what, what will happen in reality. We are not against, indeed, the electrical vehicle. They will play their, their role. And we are sure that when the, the infrastructure will be ready and available, uh, they will contribute. And, and we, we may think that in 2020-50, it will take 50% uh, place, which is a lot. And indeed, it remains uh, room for new technologies. Uh, and we are ready to develop and we are working on new technologies, uh, green hydrogen. Uh, it's important, the word green is important because we know as well that for electricity, today, uh, it's, not, it's not only green electricity. So you, you shouldn't think that uh, having an electrical vehicle solve uh, straight away this emission problem. It, it will resolve it when the components are green and when the electricity is green, which is not uh, immediately, uh, but won't be immediately the case. So we are more in favor of a more neutral approach, including all solutions. Thank you very much. Thank you. There, let's collect questions. Yeah, there's questions there and the lady there at the back. Um, Jean-Philippe Cornelis. Uh, I'm coordinator of a civic forum at the University of Louvain-la-Neuve uh, named Creatopia in Anthropology, trying to find solutions for the climate change. Uh, we organized in 2007 the first Belgian rally CO2-free with electric cars. We were making this rally with lead batteries. And we are astonished how fast the promotion of those batteries are today, because it's very important. And we believe that, uh, for instance, in electricity, we have to have a very broad approach of, we are in an economical, um, um, I mean the wit that, let's see that for instance, we have to import oil. If we take electricity from our solar panels, it's free. I have 30 square meters of solar panel. I can drive completely safe 25,000 kilometers with this, those solar panels. So let's have a broad view about those problems. For instance, with thermic cars, we are making people sick. Are we reckoning this price of those sick people? The well-to-wheel return of thermic cars will never be good because we have laws of thermodynamics. We claim that with electric cars we have a well-to-wheel 10 times better and clean than thermic cars. Thank you. Thank you very much. Then one question and come to the panel there. The lady at the... Was there someone there? Yeah. Yeah. Thank we'll you. I'm Georgia Mann from First Europe. And actually, my question can be coupled with what was already said by Mr. Dumont de Chassard. Um, well, the Commission is working on a mid-century strategy, and many energy-intensive industries are preparing their vision for the 2030, 2050. 
And among them, there is also the, the refinery industry, so Fuels Europe, who launched a few weeks ago uh, its Vision 2050. And to make a long story short, uh, it's based on two main things. So the production of uh, new products, so low carbon fuels, and the presentation of what the how the refinery will look like in 2050. So um, it's supposed to become a um, hub, a cluster of industry uh, where um, many issues are connected and um, many technologies will be employed like the CCS or um, CCUS. So uh, as, was, as it was said, we don't think there is a um, silver ballot solution, but uh, many things can be considered. And I wanted to know well, many things can be considered if there is a proper regulatory framework that encourages the, the investment in order to happen in this kind of scenario. Uh, so I wanted to know if the, in the strategy that is proposed by Bruegel, um, there is some uh, consideration on how the refinery can uh, improve the situation and the contribution of the refinery sector uh, for the 2050 and or for the future in general, considering also the link to other industries such as the uh, petrochemical industry. So beyond what was already said, also the, the importance of this industry and of its evolution uh, for, for other kind of products that we need, we all need. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Well, let's, let's come back to the panel. We have one more round. Um, yes. Maybe if I can try to package a little bit. Uh, the uh, comments. It is true that uh, in order to tackle climate change, we need a global approach and not a European-only approach, but it is also true that we should do what we can in our house first, right? So we should put our house in order and then possibly export a successful solution worldwide. Having said that, it's also uh, good to take into consideration that while we have a binding target for 2030, we also have a vision for 2050, as far as decarbonization is concerned, and by 2050, we want to fully decarbonize the European economy. And in order to reach to that point, it's clear that, uh, uh, as we showed from our analysis, transport should be fully decarbonized. And if you want to decarbonize this sector, the only way to, to, to go is really, in our view, to make a breakthrough in terms of policy in order to give the investment certainty to the players, notably the automotive, because that's, in our view, what is really needed to drive the change. It's clear that the internal combustion engines can become more and more and more efficient over time. That's exactly why the automotive industry is still patenting 40% of uh, what they are doing in internal combustion engine. But uh, making internal combustion engine more efficient doesn't mean making the combustion engine uh, zero emission. Uh, on the electric vehicle, being uh, fueled uh, with coal-fired generated electricity, uh, I think that was a little bit uh, the idea. Well, that, first of all, would only happen nowadays in Europe in certain countries. By the way, we have also policy proposals to tackle that issue in those countries, as Maria mentioned at the beginning. But even if uh, that would be the case, that would anyhow allow you to reduce the air pollution issue. So still, you would have a gain from the electric vehicle compared to the other one. So all in all, I think it would be a good solution. 
I agree with, with the gentleman here from Total that, that there will be a long time uh, during which internal combustion engines will continue to exist. Uh, the sheer number of vehicles that exist today and the ones that will come will require year, decades before you, you have a complete evolution in that sense, which I, by the way, I think it will never really happen. There will be always places where you need some internal combustion engine capability. And it's true that the internal combustion engines have improved over the years continuously. They perhaps have improved also because policies have forced them to improve. They have not improved every year and every time that policies didn't push in that direction. And the United States is a big example recently of that. You know, So I think the, 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 the question is not whether there will be you know, 100% electric cars everywhere in the world in a few years. No, this is not going to happen at all. But it's true that uh, there is a rule in the technology evolution of things that applies most of the times. Maybe this time will not apply, but most of the times. And as soon as the technology becomes globally available on a world scale, and as soon as it reaches the million and million of pieces and it becomes competitive on an economic standpoint, that technology picks up. And electric vehicles fall in that category by far. We have big economies like China, for example, and the EU that are switching to that direction. Uh, so it's, it, we've seen that in, in many other cases in the past. You know, uh, um, So that is something that you cannot really argue anymore. It's an issue of how the infrastructure can cope. If the, if the cost of the infrastructure to cope with that new thing is slow, that new thing will explode. It will take over. And that is, that is what is going to happen, regardless of what our opinion. This is not an issue of opinion. The fact that you will observe, there's nothing wrong with it. Our life will not materially change all of a sudden. We will not become happier or, <laughs> or sadder. But it's just going to happen as, as we live. And, and we'd better prepare for it because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something bigger than us. Thank you, Francisco. We have time for two more questions. There is one there. and uh, Okay, two there. Okay, that will be the end. The gentleman there? Yes, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, Eugenio Stopani, I work in uh, DG Grow, uh, European Commission on Automotive Industry. And I have one observation. Uh, first of all, you talked about the regulatory regime in Europe to promote electric vehicles. So now, of course, you know that there was a CO2 proposal pushing for a share of electric vehicles and highly efficient combustion engine vehicles uh, in Europe. Uh, you know that now we have also initiatives that promote, for example, batteries production in Europe. We have actually the EU Battery Initiative where uh, there were companies like, for example, Northolt in Sweden that will start producing batteries in Europe. And I think this will also address one of the issues that you mentioned that we have to import, uh, let's say, technologies from other countries such as, such as China. So I think this would be uh, quite important in terms of competitiveness for the European industry. My question was maybe a bit strategic uh, for Enel because you, know, you have technologies such as um, uh, vehicle to grid that you're developing. Um, do you think that this technology will be developed in the near future? How, how fast do you see that it will be developed? Because, you, you, as you said, electric vehicles are still very low in terms of overall fleet uh, percentage. And uh, in which countries do you think, in Europe, there will be the most progress uh, 
regarding electric vehicles and potentially for you business opportunities, uh, let's say for the electricity sector. So, thank you. Thank you. There's two questions. The lady there and the gentleman there. Susanne Rompel, I'm working for uh, Energy, German uh, energy company. Uh, an argument which we very often hear here in the policy discourse in Brussels is that the grid is actually not ready for electric mobility. It's very often said, what happens if there are three Teslas in the same street who want to charge at the same time? It's an argument that I, I don't share, but I would be very interested in hearing your views, Mr. Starace, but also the view from Bruegel on this. Thank you. Thank you. And then some final questions there, and then we have to stop, I think. Please. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Anton from G Plus Europe. And I would like to know, um, is there a way that the European Union could help foster the public transportation, not only in the cities, but also in long-distance uh, coaches? Because recently we see that uh, Flixbus just developed an electric car. I think it was tested in April. And this is the kind of technology and the kind of innovation that we're looking for in Europe. So what could be done in Europe to foster this? Thank you. Okay, lovely. Thank you very much. Why did I come back to the panel for the final words? Francesco, sure. you go first. Um, first of all, on battery production, uh, yeah, I think Europe should definitely step into that. There is no reason why we shouldn't. Um, a battery production factory is uh, not really employing a uh, heavy um, number of people. It's, it's basically high technology and capital intensive uh, infrastructure. So at this very moment, with low interest rates, uh, basically close to zero, and, and technology being available in Europe, I see no reason. And I, I would say there would be no real reason why Europe cannot be competitive with any other place in the world. It's not an issue of manpower being cheaper in China than in Europe. There's not enough power to justify the difference. So I think the idea and the, the initiative of uh, Vice President Sefcovic has been very timely, and I think Europe should definitely step into that. It, it's, uh, it's, it's a vital part of the value chain. It would be a pity to leave it. Okay. Um, on the other point of uh, vehicle-to-grid, um, the vehicle-to-grid technology is today available on two car manufacturers, Japanese. So I'm not going to, tell, to make names because it's a little bit of a, but there are two Japanese manufacturers that started this vehicle-to-grid technology. So those cars are available today on a vehicle-to-grid basis. The other uh, manufacturers are going to implement vehicle-to-grid in models that are still not in the market today. Um, we have the, the on, we are on the, on the charger side, the only ones to have the B2G capability because it, it, there is a certain proprietary technology on the, on the meter that sits into, into, the, into the charging column. Frankly, I think this is, it, it's already working. We have had cars in Denmark and the UK uh, do this V2G job for uh, several months and earning 50 to 60 euros a month for the owner just to that, doing that. Um, so this will happen uh, in all grids that are digitized. So if the grid is not digitized, it's not really functional on a large scale. Um, so those places where you see first uh, the medium voltage and low voltage grid being digitized are those that will quicker develop V2G applications. As far as where electric cars are going to be <coughs> faster in the deployment, 
I think it's uh, the usual suspects, obviously Germany, I mean, the, the car world, <laughs> Germany, France, I mean, this part of, the, of Europe will be fast in implementing uh, electric cars because of um, combination of car manufacturers being present, uh, wanting to defend their own domestic market from other people playing into their field, and having an infrastructure that perhaps might be more, more ready. I think on Germany there is an issue that a huge resistance from the digital to the digital transformation as, as far as the distribution grids are concerned. That's a limiting factor there. Uh, and if to go back to Germany on this issue of, uh, of grid not being ready, this is something of a, of a myth that is being sold around many, many times. <clears throat> Maybe not everybody knows that at the, at the uh, distribution network or a, ne or a medium uh, low voltage network of an uh, average country in Europe experiences in a year um, about 500 to a million uh, uh, new requests of um, metering installations due to new built houses, due, due to new, new open shops, due to new factories. It's about between 500 to a million additional endpoints added to the grid every year. And around 300, 200,000 shut down because of closing a shop, closing a factory, and stuff like that. So when you, took, when you take the average power associated to this kind of additional meters that you put there, we're talking about 20 to 50 kilowatt average. We're talking about many, many, three, four, five kilowatts, and some 100, 200, 300 kilowatts application. And a typical charging station, public post for a, a car today absorbs between 50 to 150 kilowatts. So nothing special, really nothing special. You know, a charging station for a Tesla, which today is the largest uh, power-hungry car that you can find around, absorbs when charging the car what a norm, a mid-size hotel or, or a restaurant typically absorbs. Are we concerned about the number of restaurants being opened? No, we're not. <laughs> so why should we be concerned about this? This is not an issue for many, many years to come. Thank you, and Simone, Yes, just to, to close, probably, uh, there was an observation Transport is not only happening at the city level, there are also long distances that should be faced and there actually are different challenges. I agree with what you said about the passengers and I think the clean mobility package also has something related to this specific issue, but I'm also particularly concerned by freight transport and there I think that railways can really uh, be an important part of the solution and for that uh, uh, what the European Commission is putting forward also with the new budget post 2020 enhancing the connecting Europe facility and therefore the trans-European railway network uh, that's something that is extremely important also under a decarbonization standpoint. Probably I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you both for very interesting thank uh, information thank and thank you for coming and joining us. Thank you. Thank you.